Hey friends, it's Michelle Lamoureux, and I wanted to let you know that I've selected some of my favorite interviews to rerun for you this holiday season and into the new year. The newest season of the Good Life Coach podcast will air on Wednesday, January 18th. And if you have yet to subscribe or follow the show on your favorite podcast player, you can do so now and any new episodes will automatically upload to your listening device. The other way to stay connected is to sign up for my newsletter over at thegoodlifecoach.com. It comes out once a week and I'll email you the latest interview and other updates that I only send to the Good Life Coach community through the newsletter. And once you sign up, you actually get a copy of my book, Design a Life You Love Free, sent to your inbox. So I'm wishing you all a happy, healthy, and abundant new year and look forward to connecting with you again in 2023. Be well and enjoy this rerun. Here we go. Yeah, I created this goal that by 2026, for the 2026 season, I would have a show on Broadway, which was in fact an audacious goal because I literally did not know. I had no idea how to write musical theater. This is not something that I had done before and was picking back up. It was something I had never done. But one of the things that I think is very empowering about truly setting long-term goals is if you have a long enough runway, just about everything is possible. Right. If you actually consistently spend a portion of your time over 10 years to do something, I mean, most reasonably intelligent people, like you might not be the best in the world at it, but you're going to get pretty good if you put that much time into it. Welcome to the Good Life Coach Podcast. I am your host, Michelle Lamoureux. The intention of this show is to awaken you to your fullest potential. Join me each week for inspiring interviews to elevate an area of your life, as well as interviews with women entrepreneurs who are creating success on their own terms. Each episode provides actionable tips to guide you to design a life you love. Hey there, it's Michelle and welcome back to the show. Joining us today to talk about how to be a long term thinker in a short-term world based on her book by the same name is Dory Clark. Dory helps individuals and companies get their best ideas heard in a crowded, noisy world. She's been named by Thinker 50 as one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world and was honored as the number one communication coach in the world at the Marshall Goldsmith Coaching Awards. Congrats, Dory. That's amazing, by the way. Thank you, Michelle. She's a keynote speaker and teaches for Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and Columbia Business School. She's the author of Entrepreneurial You, which was named one of Forbes's top five business books of the year, as well as Reinventing You and Stand Out, which was named the number one leadership book of the year by Inc. Magazine. You're amazing. A former presidential campaign spokeswoman, Dory has been described by the New York Times as an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make changes in their lives. Welcome, Dory. Thank you, Michelle. Great to be here. So excited to have you on. We were talking before the mics went on about how there are so many people who call you a good friend. You touch so many lives and you are so passionate about what you do and you just empower people around the world. I read your book. I've seen that you've literally been like all around the world doing this work. And so I'm thrilled to have you here and also to be diving into your book, which I absolutely loved 
so much value. I'm going to be going back over and over and there's certain chapters that I, I know I'm going to need to revisit. So um, I'm so excited to dive into this idea of playing the long game. I thought it was really an interesting way to think and actually realize it's how I'm approaching my work. But you bring up a lot of things that I want to talk to you about today in terms of like, how do you know when you're on track? But let's just start first with what does it mean in your words? This is your book, your concept to play this long game. And why is it important for people to understand this in order to find personal and professional success? So the way that I think about playing the long game is that ultimately it is understanding and doing the things that you can do today to make tomorrow easier or better. And I think the the value of it is often self-evident to people. The execution of it is really the hard part. And so I wanted to write a book and create a framework to hopefully make it easier for people to be able to operationalize what they know they want to do. We know we want to be long-term thinkers. And so how do we make it happen and make it real? Right. Well, this, that's the challenging part, right? <laughs> so you write, uh, you share in the book, you uh, can't do something, anything for a long time, and it'll assume it'll yield results. You have to do the right things. And I think this is where it gets a little tricky, right? So how do we discern what the right things are? Do we need to begin with a big picture of vision to keep us motivated to pursue the long-term thinking? And then how do we actually measure if we're on track? Because I think you know people have all these ideas and they get going and then so easy to get sidetracked. So how do we how do we manage this? There's a, a lot of pieces to it, obviously, and we can go into more depth about any of them. But broadly speaking, I would say there's a three-step process to really figuring out what we should be doing and being able to make it happen. The first is creating more white space for ourselves, because so often a huge problem for most professionals is they don't even have time to do long-term thinking. They can't even go there because they are so overscheduled. Their, their, their cup is running over and there's just not margin to even be asking those questions. Right. So creating some of that white space is number one. Number two is about focusing and really getting getting other people's voices out of your head and tapping more deeply into yours so you understand what you want to be optimizing for. And then third, and finally, it's what I call keeping the faith because inevitably, if there is a long-term enough goal, there are almost always going to be obstacles. There's going to be detours. There's going to be surprises along the way. Yeah. It's very easy for a lot of people to get discouraged or just sort of drop off the path. And so I want to help good people be able to persevere longer so that they can actually accomplish what they set out to. Completely. But I think it is hard to know sometimes if you are on the right track, like you're three years into like me doing a podcast. Like, how do you set, like, are there benchmarks? Are there measurements? Is it a personal thing or is, should it be external results? You know, how do you kind of measure if you're really kind of making enough traction and, or whether you need to maybe pivot? How do you, how do you discern that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've pointed to a central question because one of the hugest challenges is that Again, for, for long-term goals, for the yeah. kind of meaningful ones that we have to work at them for a while, there is a, a huge distance in time and in effort between starting the journey and finishing the journey. Yeah. And in between, I often think of it as like a dark tunnel because you are not getting much light. You're not getting much feedback. You're not getting tons of people being like, oh, Michelle, that's really brilliant. You should keep <laughs> that up. Yeah. 
<laughs> mostly in the early days, you're ignored. You know, you're lucky. You know, I, I get people all the time, you know, clients of mine, and they're starting out and they're worried. They're like, oh, I don't know. I really don't know if I should start blogging or start the podcast because, you know, I'm just worried about the online haters. I'm like, you would be so lucky most because mostly people won't care. <laughs> so, so true. So we got to persevere through what is the hardest part, which is just nobody listening at all. That's really, that's really challenging. So your question points to what is often the default for most people, you know, yeah. it's sort of human nature, which is yeah. we, we figure out where we're doing and how we're doing by looking around and seeing what other people are doing. Now, this is not a bad way to, you know, avoid being killed on the savannah. It's also not a great way to live our lives day to day because that is how we get into these comparison traps that can be so pernicious. Yes. And so what I what I like to suggest, what, one concept I talk about in the long game is what I call looking for the raindrops because the way that I think about, you know, the big success, like the big score that everybody's after, that's like the thunderstorm, right? It's so big. It's so obvious. Anybody can see it. And if that's the only thing that we're looking for, you know, it's going to take a while. But the truth is most thunderstorms don't just start out of the blue suddenly and unexpectedly. You see the storm clouds gathering, you feel the raindrops, and they might be so subtle at first that you're not even a hundred percent sure if it is a raindrop, but you notice and then you're like, oh wait, there was one. Oh wait, wait, that was another. And in our lives, those are those are the clues. They're the small clues that we're making progress. It's, you know, oh, all of a sudden, you know, I feel like I wasn't getting any email signups and now I'm getting five a day. Well, you might say, oh, well, that's lame. Why would you celebrate five a day? That's just so small, blah, blah, blah. You know, Gretchen Rubin has a million, <laughs> but like five a day means five people every day are saying, oh, she's actually really interesting. I'd like to hear more. And that is what starts to build over time. And it's, it's true for all of us, whether you work in a company, whether you work for yourself, um, it's just the small clues that we need to start tuning into. I know later in the book, you talk about exponential growth. Can you just touch upon this a little bit about how it's sort of the consistent effort over time kind of compounds? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, of course, a phenomenon that most of us are familiar with uh, in investing, if we've studied this at all, right? Like right. we've all heard the statistic, which, you know, remains hard to wrap our heads around, but true nonetheless. Right. They're like, oh, you know, if you invest $10 a month when you're 20, you'll, you know, you'll have uh, $50 billion by the time you retire. You know, <laughs> right. what it, these right. are not actual no, numbers, I know but what you, you get the idea. <laughs> um, and it's it's like, oh my God, like $10 a month can can do that. But but compounding really pays off. And it is similar for our career progress. And so one of the best examples that I that I have seen of this in, in terms of a useful metaphor is something I talk about in the long game, uh, which is uh, borrowed from the work of Peter Diamandis and Stephen Kotler, who've written a couple of books about uh, what they call exponential technology. And this is the kind of technology, digitally enabled technology, that they say is growing at an exponential rate. And so some examples might be artificial intelligence or 3D, 3D printing or self-driving cars. Yeah, back in the day, it was digital photography, mm. et cetera. Yeah. And so they have a way of kind of tracking the progress of these exponential technologies. And one of the phases they talk about, and I and I really cottoned on to this one because I thought it was so fascinating, but it, they call it the deception phase. And they call it the deception phase because this is the phase 
where things really are growing at an exponential rate. They're doubling, they're doubling, they're doubling. But it, because it started so small, nobody notices. I mean, like maybe if you're really into it, if you're like the scientist studying, you're like, oh my God, that's amazing. But everybody else looks at it and is like, um, it looks like zero, but it's not zero. <laughs> it feels it's like doubling. zero. And it, it feels, feels like, zero. like it. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. Yes. But there's a certain point, you know, where whatever for X number of years, everybody's like, wow, that, I thought that was going to be great, but still looks like zero. And then all of a sudden it dump, it, you know, jumps into what, what they call, you know, whole numbers, right? It goes from like, you know, 0.02 to 0.04, like nobody notices, but all of a sudden it goes from one to two. And then it goes from two to four and it's the same rate of doubling all along, but all of a sudden people are like, oh my God, what is that? And that frankly, is how it is with career progress as well, which is why we have the illusion of the overnight success. Yes. Yes, for sure. I had Stacey Madison on from Stacey's Pita Chips, and she said it would frustrate her when people were like, oh, you're so, got so lucky, you know, 10 years of growing the company and dealing with all the hurdles along the way, you know, and then that is hundred percent the perception. Um, and I'm just thinking though, so there are going to be people who kind of have a sense of what they're doing and need to pursue the track. And then there's going to be others who are going to be like, should I pivot? I'm kind of stuck. Where do I go? I really loved this concept that you talked about in the book about following what's interesting to you versus this idea of passion and purpose, which puts a lot of pressure on people. Can you talk about this more and how, maybe give an example, because you have such a broad kind of spectrum of, but your interests have taken you to like creating success. So you don't dabble. So maybe you can discuss this. I mean, I read about you're going to produce a Broadway play and you did, you know, stand up comedy. I mean, t- tell us more and maybe give some examples from your life. Cause I found it really interesting and you have a lot of interests that I actually have too. So I was like, Oh wow, Dory's really cool. I want to hang out with her. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it, Michelle. Yes. That sounds, that sounds amazing. I look forward to <laughs> you know, hang, hanging out and getting some margaritas in, in San Diego or yeah. whatever one does in San Diego. Yeah, for <laughs> but, sure. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that, you know, ultimately when it comes to uh, the activities that you undertake, one of the concepts that I talk about in the long game is 20% time. And this is something borrowed from Google. Um, many people might have heard about it from, from there. Um, Google encourages its employees to allocate 20% of their time to more speculative activities that are outside the scope of their regular job description. Now, the caveat, right? Not every Google employee does this. In fact, yeah. most don't, which yeah. is the interesting part, because even at a workplace that purportedly encourages it, it's still hard to to resist the pressure, to resist the lure of just you know doing the thing in front of you and saying, "Oh my God, but I have so many emails, and I just need to answer the emails." Totally. But if we forcibly, and this is this is the key, right? We yeah. have to do this for ourselves. Nobody's yeah. going to do it. But if we forcibly allocate twenty percent of our time to growth activities, professional development activities, or just something that we think would be interesting or valuable. What I like about it, what I think is really quite powerful, is it gives us much more optionality in the future. You know, it's again, let's go back to our stock metaphor, right? If we put 100% of our time and energy into one thing, into one job, into one company, into one industry, that's fantastic until it isn't. And if there's a disruption there, it really becomes problematic. Whereas if you have been diversifying in a small way, a 20% Mm -hmm. way, 
that is a big enough number that over time it actually can turn into something. But if it turns out, you know, all right, it was speculative, right? It didn't work out too bad, eh, whatever. You're you're not ever going to go bankrupt by spending twenty percent of your, or twenty percent of your time or your energy on something. It's you're not putting too much on the table. It's just enough risk in your portfolio. It's interesting though. So, can you give an example from your life how you how you did this? Maybe it was it the comedy classes or was that yeah, an example? Yeah. I mean, the the way that I really think about this most clearly yeah. is in 2016, I decided that I wanted to learn how to write musical theater. And so I created a 10-year goal for myself. Love that, by the way. I think that's so cool. <laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I know, I know that's uh, a great pa- passion and hobby of yours, which is very cool. I want to hear more about that. But uh, yeah, I created this goal that by 2026, the 2026 season, I would have a show on Broadway, which was in fact an audacious goal because I literally did not know. I had no idea how to write musical theater. This is not something that I had done before and was picking back up. It was something I had never done. But one of the things that I think is very empowering about truly setting long-term goals is if you have a long enough runway, just about everything is possible, right? If you actually consistently spend a portion of your time over 10 years to do something, I mean, most reasonably intelligent people, like you might not be the best in the world at it, but you're going to get pretty good if you put that much time into it. Yeah. But so I, so first of all, I want to kind of dissect this because I actually find it fascinating. So when you set out, because this is your 20% that you're doing for this too, by the way, like, yeah, yeah. Okay. So let's dissect this. So people have a better understanding. So you have this idea, I'm going to get this musical uh, theater, you know, on, on Broadway, I'm going to write one, which is, this is, it is an audacious goal and it's an amazing goal. And I think it's, you know, a lot of people don't even stretch beyond, you know, something that is way more attainable. Right. So do you get it on your calendar? Are you writing it down? Are you vision boarding? Like take us big picture first. And then how do you actually find the time in your calendar? Cause a lot of the people who listen are moms, they've got kids, they got, you know, a lot of responsibilities, maybe aging parents. Like, how does somebody even dream, dare to dream like that and then actually fit it in? Yeah. Well, in my case, one of the things that I thought would be important, and I think this is useful for most people, yeah. is to have some kind of a structure to hang my hat on with this. Because okay. if it was just like, okay, I'm going to learn by myself, um, it's number one, it may not necessarily be clear where to start. And number two, it's very easy to push that time off if it's only you that you're accountable to. So early in my journey, you know, the first step, uh, which I think probably most people would do, was doing lots of conversations and lots of informational interviews about like, okay, what, what does this look like? Who should I talk to? How should I approach it? And so I ended up meeting a guy at a conference who was a well-known musical theater writer. And so I asked, (laughs) yeah, you know, but that's because you're actually engaging in conversation versus sort of a superficial, like, you know, chat chatter, probably. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's about making networking a habit, which is something I also talk about in the long game as well. But I was at this conference, I met, I met the guy and I, I said, Oh, you know, I'm interested in writing uh, musical theater as well. And he said, Oh, well you have to do the BMI program. And I said, what's the BMI program. And so he explains to me, I had not heard of it before, but it was, uh, I mean, it actually was right. It sounded perfect. It was a free, completely free two-year training program in musical theater. And the whole premise was that in order to 
encourage the the long-term viability of the art form of musical theater, they wanted to have matchmaking, essentially. So you would apply as either a composer or a lyricist, and then over the course of a year, they would pair you with seven different people that you could write songs with so that you could hopefully find a really good match to continue creating musical theater with. So I I said, oh my gosh, that's perfect. Because I knew, you know, musical theater is not always, but it's most typically a lyricist composer pair. So I set my sights on that. So I, I knew from that point on, I'm like, oh, this is the path in. I need to get into this program. So the first year I applied, uh, did not get in, did not even get a call back. You know, yeah. I didn't really know how to do it. Yeah. So the next year I applied again and I got a coach. <laughs> I said, you know, I'm not going to make the same mistake twice. I'm yeah. going to get a freaking coach right. to figure out how to do this. So I hired somebody who was uh, in the advanced program and knew what they were looking for and knew how you should format it and all this stuff. And I got Mm -hmm. feedback and edits and, you know, so I I sharpened it up and I got in that year, which was fantastic. And then from that point on every, um, you know, every like either Monday or Tuesday night over the course of two years, uh, we would have a two hour session. And so that, that became really the hook for me is like, okay, it's a calendar obligation now. So two hours once a week during the academic year. And then they would give you homework and the homework was like, okay, well now you need to write a song, you know, a Christmas theme song or whatever it is. And so you'd work with your partner around it. But doing that was, uh, was essentially the the structure that helped undergird my learning process. So I think for most things we can, you know, whether it's registering for a class or taking online programs or uh, reading a set of books or something like that, it can begin to serve a similar function for you. Yeah. You know, I'm wondering, is this a part of your DNA? Like as a kid, were you just, are you just highly motivated? Cause I know women are so incredibly hard on themselves. I know women in this community talk about a lack of confidence, or maybe they had a corporate career, took time off to raise kids, trying to reinvent themselves, get back into something of meaning to them. Even if it's just like a consistent workout routine, just something that fills their cup or like pursuing art or things that they haven't done. And if it is something that is a part of you, is it something that people can cultivate and learn? Or is it, you know, because I think it's easy. Here you are, you know, how are you determining, like, are you getting feedback on your writing? Because I think music is so personal too. There's another layer there where you could so easily just sabotage yourself. So how do you work through some of these issues? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, in the BMI program, I mean, it's run by two kind of moderators and then and then you get peer feedback. And, you know, I can tell you for pretty much the entirety of, you know, I, you, so I've now, I did two years of it and then I did a year of the advanced program. I mean, like, I I don't think pretty much they've ever liked my stuff. <laughs> like, I'm sure that's not true. Okay. Uh, when the, it's pretty close, actually. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm, I'm really, I'm not, I'm not being self-deprecating. That's actually not really one of my tricks. Uh, they really didn't like it. Okay. And, you know, it's, it's certainly a very humbling experience because, um, of course, you know, we'd, we'd all like people to love everything that we do. And right. so you work very hard on something and then people are just like, Hmm, well, you know, I'm not sure I really understand what the stakes are here. And it's like, okay, what the stakes are is like, um, you know, there's like a showdown with a gun on the top of this Sydney opera house and the villain is getting ready to destroy the world. So yeah, it's not clear what the stakes are. Right. Like you're just like, Oh my God. Um, you know, it's just like ridiculous things like that, where you just feel like completely (laughs) people are not getting it. Yeah. 
And so uh, you just have to remind yourself. I mean, I think it's very useful in a, in a lot of ways, right? Because in the business realm, a lot I see this all the time in in my executive coaching clients that I work with, or folks who are part of my recognized expert course and community that I run. They get feedback from one editor, and they're like, "Oh gosh, you know, I just don't know if I can do it. I just don't know if I'm good enough." And I'm like, "Are you? This is like a, some fucking twenty four year old punk." Like, what are you talking about? Like, right? you can't listen yeah. to one person. Yeah, you, ha- you have to. I mean, yes, I'm always a fan. Like, if a hundred people are telling you something, then listen to that. That's fine. Yeah, but you can't let one outlier do it. And so, I happen to know that in the BMI program, they have a particular style that they like. I don't really. My music does not really. Uh, you know, or my my lyrics, especially, but you know, my music with my collaborator doesn't yeah. necessarily reflect that style. And so odds are they're not going to like it. You know, just we understand that to begin with. And so you you can't beat yourself up if if you are not fitting a mold, but you don't want to fit that mold. That's that's number one. And then number two is I just always tried to really be clear with myself. And, you know, you have to repeat it like a mantra sometimes like, okay, uh, I do not derive my self-esteem from here. The entirety of my self-esteem is not about whether a bunch of people like my musical theater lyrics. Like, I think they're good. And that's, you know what? Like, you just, I mean, it's like, it's like Little League, right? It's like, you do your best, you leave it on the field. And I actually do think they're, they're good. Um, But there's, uh, yeah, if, if you legitimately are learning how to do something and you are in a room with people who have not just degrees, but graduate degrees in that field, Yeah, you, you are always going to be less experienced. You are always going to be at a structural disadvantage. And if you were trying to compare yourself to people like that, it is a loser's game. Yeah. And so we just need to refrain from that. Yeah. If I'm hearing you correctly, it's, you have to know what you want. You have to build yourself up and have, you know, take in the feedback, but also keep going if this is your dream, right? If this is something that you're passionate about and maybe surround yourself with some support systems to the degree that you need it. And would you agree? I mean, am I understanding you? Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, sort of understanding, understanding where you do have advantages. I mean, all along, I was very clear I had less training in musical theater writing, but uh, I had other advantages. I am pretty good at networking. I had a good, um, you know, a, g- a good business sense, and so that was actually how I started investing in theater. Is I wanted to write. Uh, I-, I wanted to leverage the-, the capabilities that I had so that I could understand the ecosystem. I think most musical theater writers don't understand how shows are funded. They don't understand how much things cost. They, they don't necessarily have a sense of how all the pieces fit together. And so I feel like, you know, I, I would, I took workshops on producing. I have invested with a partner in four different shows so that I could really learn and understand that so that I could come in from an informed perspective about what was feasible and what wasn't. And also in the process, meet a bunch of producers so that hopefully one day I would have the connections necessary to be able to move something forward. Yeah. And I mean, I keep hearing you talk about, you know, networking, you know, taking opportunities to learn. I mean, you, 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 you took courses, you, you know, you didn't just say, I'm going to do this and then 
sit around by yourself trying to figure it all out. You keep going and moving forward and having that curiosity and surrounding yourself with what you need. And I think all of that is so important. Um, but I am curious though, were you just a super motivated kid? Because I know, I just find that a lot of the, the women who come on that are super successful have this within them. And so I believe you can learn it. I do believe you can get the support and realize dreams, but I also do see that some people are just naturally kind of motivated and driven and have vision. Is that you? Yeah. I mean, I was, I was pretty motivated for sure. Um, I think that, you know, motivation I think is essential. Uh, I think that a lot of people think that, you know, oh, well, you know, you, you must've had some special skill or you must've had some special talent or something like that. And I think I'm very skeptical about that because I think that anybody with effort, you know, again, you might, you might not become the best in the world. If you're the best in the world, it's often because of some freak thing you can't control, like how long, you know, Michael Phelps's torso is right. <laughs> like, like that's actually a big deal. Not right. to say Michael Phelps did not work hard, right. but also he has a freakish torso and that helps. Yes. Um, but you know, you want to be a really good swimmer. You want to be a really good business writer or speaker or, you know, executive, like you can do that. You can get a large part of the way there. But I think that motivation is really uh, essential as, as an undergirding factor. It doesn't necessarily mean you always have to have been motivated since you were five years old, but totally. you have to be motivated now. Uh, but if you have that, I think you can get almost anything else. I love it. And I, and I agree. And I, the uh, a huge part of the purpose of the show is to inspire women to really pursue the things that they want to do and to, to try, you know, try something on, like, just give it a go and see. Um, you are obviously a leading coach. It sounds like you bring people in when you need it. Can you talk about the value of like, you know, cause I think a lot of times we feel like, oh, we should know, know how to do it. Or we're like afraid to share our dreams or our ideas. Uh, can you just touch upon just how to get the right support around yourselves to, to propel yourself forward towards the things that you're striving for in the long, in the long game. Yeah. Well, you, you raised some, some very good points here, Michelle. One of them is I often hear from people when I'm, when I'm first talking to them that, you know, I'll ask about their network or the people around them. And sometimes people have the attitude, oh, well, you know, I don't network with people in my field. I only want to network with client, with potential clients because people in my field can't help me. They're competitors. I, mm -hmm. want, I want to meet clients. That's what's going to work. And I mean, okay, pr you know, pr props for meeting anybody. That's good. Some people sure. don't network at all. Right. But I feel like that is a bit of a short-sighted attitude because I am an, a huge fan and believer yeah. in developing a large and robust peer community. Because ultimately, number one, it is so vanishingly rare that you are actually competing head to head against anybody. Mm. Like you have your different, you know, I mean, in, unless you're, you're drafting off of somebody to an extent that you probably shouldn't be anyway, yeah. you're going to have your own message. You're going to have your own audience. You're going to have people that you speak to that, you know, th this stuff resonates with, you know, with this particular audience and with a different a, you know, different person is just going to be different. So it's not like you're competing head to head, even if you're technically this, you know, oh, well, you know, we're both coaches or something like that. And so 
we really lose out if we don't have peer connections. Because at a certain point, I mean, I've had clients that, you know, for 20 years, for 30 years, they have, they've just not been into networking or they haven't been into networking besides with clients. And at, at a certain point, what you want is to have, you know, things like, oh, well, to get into that club or to get into that professional association or whatever. And how to, you know, oh, to, to be able to go to this conference. Well, what do you need? You need a peer recommendation. And if you don't know people, you actually hit a ceiling on what you're able to accomplish yeah. because there's nobody to vouch for you. And you are also at a disadvantage because buyers often hear from or talk to multiple people doing what you do. They have a better sense of pricing and other sensitive topics than you do sometimes if you are not talking to other practitioners. And people are not necessarily going to be sharing that openly, like, oh, I'll just Google that. You know, you have to have behind the scenes conversations with trusted people about it. So I think that developing a strong peer community is really essential. Well, you're clearly excellent at that. So before the mics went on, we were talking, I was saying to you how so many people will be like, oh, my good friend, Dory. That's how they, everyone says the same words though, my good friend, Dory. So everyone feels very connected to you. There's obviously something you're doing when you're networking that isn't superficial. Um, you know, I remember working with lawyers and they'd be very uncomfortable in networking situations. I'm like, just be yourself. Like, don't try to be somebody you're not. Just be a human being and connect. This isn't about closing a deal. You're just having a conversation, right? I'm, I'm with you, Michelle. I, I remember I gave uh, I gave a talk once to the Boston Bar Association. So <laughs> yeah, talking to your right? peeps. And a lot of them are very um, uncomfortable in those situations. And maybe even some of the people that are, are listening are. Um, any tips on, especially now during COVID where people, a lot of this, you know, interviews aren't happening or connections aren't happening. It's happening more now where people are getting back together, but um, ways, whether it's even not in the pandemic, just to be proactive about making those meaningful connections. Well, you know, one strategy that I talk about in the long game that I think can be really useful, people often feel hesitant for obvious reasons about connecting with, you know, oh boy, you know, these people are so accomplished. What would I ever talk to them about? You know, they feel like there's a sort of status or hierarchy or things like that. And so in those circumstances, I am a big fan. You know, we always hear this in this, you know, sort of cliche, like lead with value. Like, what does that mean? Well, one of my favorite uh, strategies actually is giving people promotional opportunities. So podcasts are actually a great way. Um, also, I'm a big fan of writing for high profile publications. If you can make the effort to get yourself set up with a uh, an ability to write articles and have a place where you can feature them regularly, it's very powerful because it means that you can reach out to high profile people in your field. Like, oh, hey, can I interview you for my blah, blah, blah column? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, especially if they have heard of this publication, they will they will appreciate. They'll say, "Yes, sure," and it gives you an opportunity to connect with them. And you know, not all of them will turn into friendships, but some of them do, and that's really that's really wonderful. Mm -hmm. uh, another possibility, which is actually great for developing peer level connections, or you know, in, in this instance, even if someone is uh, kind of a you know, quote unquote, a mini celebrity in your field, if you have this toehold, you can approach them like a peer is to find a commonality and then just leverage that. So I'm a really big fan, like go deep in the, in, in the institutions that you're involved in. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you are in an alumni group, 
um, you know, reach out. It's even better if you actually take on a kind of official role. Like you can volunteer to be like, oh, I'll be the membership chair. Well, good. Then it's your job to reach out and, and connect with whoever you want to. So that's that's kind of a cool thing. It could be an alumni group. It could be a civic group. It could be, oh, hey, we're both contributors to such and such publication. It could be, oh, we were both speakers at such and such conference. Like whatever your uh, sort of badge of authority is, whatever that that institutional affiliation is, leverage it to reach out to other people as a peer who have that as well. It's great. It's great advice. Absolutely great advice. And I think you, it's about making that effort and creating a situation where you feel like you are then also maybe the host too, in some ways, right? I'm writing this article. Come on, I have a podcast. And it makes it a little bit easier to, to connect in that way. Um, everyone needs to read your book. It's really so, there's so many great, I mean, you t- there's so many stories in there and so many great uh, tips on how to do, to live this long game scenario and be successful. Um, you've given us great examples from your life as well, which I so appreciate. Um, anything I didn't ask that you do want to mention today? Um, you know, we obviously aren't going to go, there's so many things in there. So everyone needs to just read it and I will direct them to your website, but anything that I didn't ask that you think it's important to mention? Well, I I realized retrospectively, you had alluded to this, Michelle, and then I kind of got off on a different tangent. So I'll I'll bring it back. Uh, You had mentioned one of the concepts that I talk about in the long game, which I call optimize for interesting. And this is something that I, I just think is a useful rule of thumb. And I learned it probably about 15 years ago, and you will appreciate this. The context of it was that I was at the time making a documentary film, directing this documentary film about a woman who led the cleanup of the Nashua River in Massachusetts in New Hampshire, uh, which was at the time one of the most, the, you know, 10 most polluted rivers in the country. And she, so we were making this documentary film about her. She's 80 years old at times. Now she's 90 plus. She is just going strong uh, named Marion Stoddard. But she was telling us about, uh, you know, we're doing these kind of interviews about her life and how she got to be who she was. And she mentioned that the day she went off to college, that she remembered that her mother, the mom's parting advice as she's walking out the door to go to college is her mother says, well, whenever there's a choice of what to do, pick what's more interesting. <laughs> and I, love it. I thought, oh, amazing. That Let's is amazing. That. Right. Let's that's right. And that's actually a great place to start. And that's again a huge part of what we talk about on the show. Um, I do like to end by asking my guests what their three best tips are for living a good life. So philosophical. I know, I know, but it's you know, sometimes just you hear something and it stays with you though, and it becomes something that you can kind of anchor to. It's amazing. I've gotten such feedback on this. People love hearing this. So. Yeah. I, yes, it's, it's very, it's always a very thought provoking question. So I will say, all right, if we're doing three, um, my answer from the long game is that the starting point of being able to be a long-term thinker is having the space to do it. And so we need to get better at tightening the criteria over time that at 22, you say yes to everything. That's fine. <laughs> at, at 32, at 42, at 52 and beyond, it is a terrible, terrible mistake to continue saying yes to everything. We have to keep tightening that criteria as we get more senior, more in demand, more sought after, because otherwise we're never going to have room to set our own agenda. Yes. So that's number one. Number two, 
is uh, drink a lot of water. <laughs> and <laughs> part yeah. of how I've been able to do it. Yeah. yeah. Cheers. That's no, right. I don't. So how do you do it? What is your trick? I need well, that. Okay. I grew up, you know, like, like every child of the eighties drinking way too much Coca-Cola. And what I reverse engineered was that it was not, it was not that I necessarily needed the Coca-Cola. What I desperately needed was carbonation. And uh -huh. so I've never been excited about water. I always found it really boring. Yeah. But once I realized that I could carbonate it, I love it. And it feels like a soda, even though no, it is not in fact a soda. I drank too much Coke too. I can relate. Yeah. Yes. So yes. anyway, I'm all about the soda stream. I think it's a miracle. And uh, so that's been very helpful to me. And the third thing that I will say is uh, one of the things near the top of my list that I always try to do is to be, to be a good daughter. And, uh, and I've, I've come to realize, I mean, you know, now I, now I have a couple of ladies in my life. My mom is in her eighties and mm. um, our housekeeper that I grew up with, she's now in her nineties. Mm. And uh, you know, just like when people get to be like sort of super senior citizens, there's just like less going on for them. There's less that they're doing. And so it becomes proportionately way more important that you be in touch and that you call them because uh, it just means a lot more. Like a call to somebody who's 80, I'm going to say means like 10 times more than a phone call to somebody who's 50 and has like already too much going on. Like, okay, that was a nice story. Thank you. Okay. Now I need to like deal with my job and deal with my kids and deal with my parents and deal with my dog. <laughs> like they, they don't even hardly want to hear from you, but if somebody's 80s, if somebody's 90, like you calling them is like the best thing in their day. And so it's worth doing that because it's just like such a mitzvah. That's beautiful. I love that. I do love that. I do call my mom and dad every day. I will say I do do that actually. That's um, awesome. <laughs> um, but I love that advice. Okay. So where can people learn more about you and your book so they can pick up a copy and really just dive into all of the amazing concepts that it's going to help them, you know, get, get that, those dreams, the Broadway musical going and all the things that, you know, they're sitting on right now that need to come to fruition or at least have a chance to be seated, right? And started. Yes. Well, thank you, Michelle. I appreciate it. Yeah. If people want to check it out and learn more, the book is The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And in, in addition, of course, to all the places that one can buy books, uh, there is a free long game strategic thinking self-assessment. And folks can get it for free if you want to learn how to turn the lens on yourself and apply some of the principles of long-term thinking to your own life and your own career, uh, you can get the self-assessment for free at doryclark.com slash the long game. Yes. And I for sure will get that. And I wish I could hold up my copy, but it comes out September 21st, right? That's it. So yeah, I have it. It's It's been pre-ordered and um, I definitely encourage people to check out your website. I'm on all your newsletter lists and there's always so much value. You put so much effort and heart into everything you do. And this has been such a pleasure to finally connect with you. Like I said, I've heard your name for so many years now. So this is really such an honor and congrats on your amazing book. Thank you so much. Great to connect with you too, Michelle. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I hope you gained some new information or inspiration for your life. That is that the essence of this show is to really wake up to what's possible for you to reclaim your beautiful voice and to really learn to love and prioritize yourself. So 
If you gained any value from any of the conversations you've tuned into, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can do that right now on your phone. And please do consider leaving a rating and review if you have yet to do so on Apple Podcasts. It's actually how more women can find the show. And I really want to grow a community of women who are loving themselves and living full on. So thank you as always for tuning in. And I look forward to reconnecting with you next Wednesday. Bye for now.